Welcome to Tech Transforms, sponsored by Dynatrace. I'm Carolyn Ford. Each week, Mark Snell and I talk with top influencers to explore how the U.S. government is harnessing the power of technology to solve complex challenges and improve our lives. Hi, thanks for joining us on Tech Transform. I am Carolyn Ford here with Mark Snell. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Carolyn. Okay. In the spirit of Halloween, today's episode is the second in a three-part series, and we're exploring some of the creepier, spookier, crazier sides of technology in this series. If you haven't already, listeners, be sure to catch the first episode in the series focused on the spooky side of generative AI with Mr. X. That's his villain name that I gave him. And um, just fair warning to our guests today, I'm going to come up with one for you too. So today we have the honor, I'm a little amped up, I'm not going to lie, like we have a rock star today and um, we're welcoming Grant Schneider. Grant has spent his entire 30-year career focused on the nation's security. Um, He spent over 20 years at the Defense Intelligence Agency, seven of which he was the CIO He then spent six years at the executive office of the president during the Obama and Trump administrations. I have questions about that. Focused on all aspects of federal and critical infrastructure security. During that time, he served as a senior director for cybersecurity policy on the National Security Council staff and most recently as the federal CISO. So um, for those of you guys like me, let's just say like, the White House CISO, like it's cool. So for the past three years, he's served as Senior Director of Cybersecurity Services at Venable, helping organizations from across all sectors enhance their cybersecurity programs through the development and implementation of risk management programs, as well as assisting with the preparation, response, and recovery from various cyber incidents, including ransomware. So I'm telling you guys, like today's episode is a do not miss. We're going to talk to Grant. We're going to try to like get him to tell us like the scariest stories from his career, from ransomware to I want to know if a cyber fire sale is like, can it happen? Like in Die Hard? I want to know. And based on his background, you know, we're going to get some good stuff. So welcome to the show, Grant. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Thanks for being here. Maybe now I'm a little scared to be here. So, (laughs) well, we want you to scare us with some really good stories. Um, But we'll start with some easy stuff. Uh, I want to start off with your your public service career. You were on the front lines, and really still are on the front lines of the nation's cybersecurity posture. And looking back, even at your time at the DIA, your work has contributed to enhancing the security of the federal government. How has our nation's approach to cybersecurity matured or evolved over the course of your career? And were there any moves that were more impactful than others, in your opinion? Yeah. So, I mean, we've evolved a ton, right? The the government has evolved a lot. This industry has evolved a lot. And it's it's really been as technology has evolved. And, you know, I remember at DIA when I first got there, there were no 
there were no connections to the internet, the unclassified internet in our building. Um, and when I left, every single person in the building had an unclassified computer under their desk, as well as a couple classified computers, because they needed to be on, on other networks. And so as we kind of expanded our threat surface by connecting more things to the network, we have increased the consequence of, you know, a cyber incident, of a technology incident, of our technology going down. And, and I think along those lines, we've, you know, cybersecurity was born and really moved from, you know, when I was first at DIA, you know, we, we operated on classified networks. No one really talked about security because we were isolated and segregated from the rest of the world. Um, and we just talked about information management or maybe information security. And that organization was a policy organization. They wrote policies and put policies out that the people doing IT operations had to implement and were supposed to, you know, do upgrades and updates and patches and all, all the, the basics that uh, you would expect today. Um, but what we saw is, you know, as those consequences of, a, of an incident increased, the information security team eventually became cybersecurity, but became an operational entity inside organizations and became, you know, where you had a security operations center that was looking at security on a, you know, seven days a week, 24 hours a day basis. And, and it really became, you know, its own, you know, sets of skills and, and separate and apart from you know, the IT operators that had always been there running 24-7 uh, operations, but really became a distinct skill set and a distinct part of the organization um, over over the years. And I think we've just seen that continue to grow, uh, you know, both in public sector as well as in private sector as well. You so you brought share? up something really interesting there, Grant, that I wanted to ask you about, because you said as over time as you have, uh, as the, you know, as uh, uh, technology and uh, you know organizations have expanded, uh, and you have ex you know access to external internets and stuff like that, do you see that the the, the threat vector more? Um, uh, do you see it as increasing, or that we've we've risen to the challenge of protecting that? Do you, I guess where I'm trying to go with this is uh, how does insider threat Play there is that more of like uh, something that accidentally you know people you know could make mistakes or I guess it could be malicious. Um, well, I, just a lot of different directions. <laughs> I, I, oh, yeah, I'm that. sorry. Sorry, I didn't I, know how no, to no, pose no, no, it. No, I, totally I, good, yeah, totally good. Yeah. I, I think so. A the the threats continue to increase, and the the threats you know. As we've shifted IT and we've put more things and connected more things to our networks, well, we've created the opportunity, you know, for decades, security was really about espionage, right? It, it was about nation states and about espionage and trying to steal information that didn't have much value be, beyond espionage and or maybe some industrial espionage as well, right? But we've now shifted and we've seen over the last 20 plus years to where, you know, being a malicious actor in cyberspace, you can monetize your activity and the ability to monetize about ransomware. 
whether it's ransomware, whether it's fraud that you're going to go in and steal yeah. health data or steal credit card information, right? A lot of this started as I was going to steal credit card information and sell, you know, uh, pawn credit cards. So any way that a, an actor can monetize as we've interconnected the world and put more data and more information and more sensitive stuff um, Threat actors continue to look for ways to monetize that. And if, as long as they continue to be able to monetize it in a variety of fashions, ransomware being a big one, but in a variety of fashions, uh, those, those threats are going to increase and we're going to need to, to take, you know, more protective measures. So, and I can come back to insider threat if you want. Well, (laughs) yeah, no, I, I was thinking like when you were first talking, then Mark, you, you made me even lean into it more was I'm wondering, Grant, you said, okay, at first we were never connected to the internet. And then as time went on, everybody had an outside connection to the internet. You were there when Snowden um, rocked the world. Did that connection to the internet, like how did that change things for you guys? No, I think, and on insider threat, right? What I've, I've saw the evolution of insider threat is early on in my career, you know, the intelligence community, you know, the, the screening was really about don't hire a bad guy, <laughs> right? <laughs> Screen them out in the, in the hiring process uh, with, with, with a little bit of the belief that there could be, you know, a malicious actor, you know, the nation state that's trying to plant someone in, into the community in some way, shape or form, or someone that's just, you know, has issues that you don't want, want in the intelligence community. But insider threat, and we saw this uh, with um, with uh, Manning and with Snowden, yeah. shifted to where you know when they came through the door. You know, I don't know what what was around them when they came through the door, but a lot of them became these ideological ideas, right? That that this this you know whistleblower sort of approach to some degree, and I'm not saying bad things about whistleblowers, it, it, it's an important function, right. but people who had a different, you know, a different view on the lawful work that was being done by the community, right? And Snowden just thought that work was bad and thought we were doing things as a country that we were doing legally were wrong, and therefore, I'm personally going to do something about it, right? That was seemed to be his approach. So, did did Snowden absolutely rock the community in a in a big way in a big way? And you know, Snowden was able to do things um, that Snowden shouldn't have been able to do from a policy standpoint, right? Most incidents, there's a policy in place that didn't get implemented in some way, shape, or form, or a technical control that got bypassed in some some way that allowed something to happen. Um, you know, with Snowden, he was in a very interesting position where his job was to gather data and then pull data together. And in fact, you know, he was downloading a whole bunch of the data that he ultimately released. And at one point got a phone call from someone that was like, Hey, you're killing my servers. My performance is bad because you're downloading all this data from us. You're scraping this data. And the response was, Oh, I'm sorry. I'll do that in the middle of the night from now on. Okay, great. Oh my gosh. Right, because he was in a position that that was his job right. was to aggregate all this data. So, you know, insider threats, super scary, super because of, you know, and in a post 9-11 world, 
you know, the, the need to know was, was the, the focus of the intelligence community that we need to share more information across the community. And it was kind of, if you were inside the tent, you got access to everything inside the tent. And, uh, you know, with things like zero trust, we've seen that, that certainly shift over the years, you know, most recently with zero trust architectures. Uh, but, but insiders are still very much a, uh, I think scary for all organizations. So speaking of nine 11, so, I, I, having worked with government agencies and commercial organizations, um, I really feel like the government has, you know, has progressed significantly across the, the front of cybersecurity and insider threat and all these things more so than maybe the, the, the commercial side of the house. But when I think of like a 9-11 or stuff like that, I think of how, how are we protecting like critical infrastructure, commercial critical infrastructure. Because you hear about this in the news a lot. You hear about the Chinese being in our electric grid. You hear about all these kind of scary things that are out there. Um, do you Have you had experience of working with uh, commercial entities uh, around that, or I guess even in government, dealing with the critical infrastructure? Yeah, I, I mean, so... When we look at critical infrastructure, which is appropriately named, right? It's critical right, infrastructure right. because it is the things, whether it's transportation, energy, water, uh, you know, telecommunications, financial systems, the things that, that make our economy run, that make our daily lives run and operate, um, you know, if something bad happens in, in one of those, it can be significantly disruptive, right? The Colonial Pipelines is a great example a couple of years ago uh, where you had, you know, you had a ransomware event, Colonial Pipelines shut down uh, okay. and then... Back up right there, just yep. for, for our listeners and for me, remind us how that ransomware attack actually happened because that is crazy to me that it happened. So can you walk us through the details just a little bit? Now you're making me dig back into my. Into I mean, my not memory too back. much, but just you know, refresh our memories. Yeah, I, I mean, essentially, and and you know, when, when the actors were able to get into their systems, and you know, my understanding is that they got into the information technology side of of the house, right? And most right. critical infrastructure have an operational technology and an information technology environments. Which historically, much like an intelligence community, those were separated. Those were air gapped and, and not interconnected. Well, like many things in our lives, you know, my stove is now connected to my home network, <laughs> the same one that, that we're doing this over. Um, you know, things got interconnected for lots of good reasons around productivity, uh, around, you know, the ability for, you know, your third party provider to, to not have to fly someone to your site to be able to repair your OT system. Um, so, you know, my understanding on, on it is that they were able to get into the IT system and they were able to essentially lock up the IT system, right? They got access, um, you know, typically in an incident, you know, you're going to get access or the adversary is looking to get, gain access. They're going to do some amount of reconnaissance to understand the environment they're operating in, understand where's the critical information. They may steal some of that information before they do anything else. What are the critical operations? 
Um, if, if you have a cyber insurance, they're going to go look for your cyber insurance policy so that if they are, are going to you know, ask for a ransom, they know what your coverage is. Um, they're going to understand your business uh, before they let you know that they're there. And then ransomware is kind of the thing they do at the end where they then lock up your systems. Once they've done all the, the, the work, the prep work that they need to do, they're going to encrypt systems. They're going to t- deny the company the access to their systems. Um, you know, to the best of my knowledge, the adversary didn't get into the OT systems and the Colonial Pipeline shut down uh, their OT systems as, you know, in an abundance of caution because they really didn't know the extent. Um, and they didn't want uh, to have have something happen on that you know, delivery side. However, shutting it down had, you know, for all of us on the East Coast, had a significant impact, um, both from a real impact of places where you couldn't go get gas. And then the fear that my gas station might be the next one to not have gas. So I need oh, to go fill up all my it. cars crazy. and keep a couple hundred gallons of gas, you know, <laughs> in, in my garage that I don't need to go anywhere for. Right. Everyone sort of took that that approach. So, um, but, but that then drove this, you know, Wait, a lack you of confidence. Really, you had 200 gallons of gas in your garage. No, not, not me. I, but I think a lot of people went in <laughs> yeah. and, hey. you know, hoarded, right. I, I mean, grew up in Utah. We saw it with toilet paper during COVID too. Oh yeah. <laughs> this no, is, I, seems to be human nature. I grew up in Utah. Father very much. I mean, I guess we could fall into the prepper camp. We actually had a tank in our backyard. I don't know how many gallons it held, but we like, we had that kind of stuff. You were prepared. Oh yeah. We were very prepared. Survivalist. Yeah. So, okay. <laughs> so we're, we're starting to dabble into, this is the good stuff. Live free, die hard. So die hard for, for, for those of you who guys aren't a fan, you should watch this because it's scary as I, it's very scary. The idea, this this cyber fire sale idea where everything could be shut down by these hackers. And what you're telling me, Grant, just based on the the pipeline incident, um, that it it's possible. It's possible, right? Well, I think there's a couple a couple aspects. I mean, something being possible. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things that are that are possible, right? If you put all the parts of a watch in a bag and shake it forever, eventually the watch will come together. Um, you know, I, I don't recommend trying that at home because I think oh, you'll spend a, a good, lot of that's time. That's a good analogy. But in theory, that's possible. Um, yeah. I, I think, though, to me, what's the, almost as scary is like what threshold does an adversary need to get to? to have a significant impact on our economy, on our trust in the economy, on our trust in the, in the ability that we're going to have these, these goods, these critical infrastructure items delivered to us. And so, you know, I, I think the way our critical infrastructure, A, it's mostly owned and operated by private companies, right? Um, right. Some of it's owned and operated by the government, but it's very... Uh, much in a um, decentralized, right? It's very decentralized across the country. And so, you know, there is an amount of air quotes, maybe security. It's not really real security, but there is a, 
isn't a amount of resiliency, that's a better word, by having the, the amount of distributedness. But it also means you end up with a whole bunch of different levels of readiness, right? You've got some organizations that, uh, you know, have the understanding, the budgets, the ability to actually invest in these areas, think financial services. Um, and then you've got other organizations that are small, maybe a municipal, you know, water department in a county or a, a small town who is rate limited, right? They can't charge more money. Uh, they can't necessarily raise their rates without getting some approval through a political process. So they can't even invest if they want to, if they have the awareness and they want to be able to do it. So you end up with a lot of different, um, you know, levels out there. But I think the ability to start that type of disruption is super scary to me um, because you don't have you don't have to be able to actually disrupt all of it um, if you can create enough concern and a lack of confidence in the delivery of the critical infrastructure. You're going to see you know these follow on kind of human nature. Uh, uh, results that, that That's are a also great example. Be so, negative. So I've always looked at our decentralization or our, or our openness as a potential weakness in area that our adversaries would attack. But am I hearing you saying the decentralization actually could make it harder because there's so many different We're, we're kind of air gap by to, default, right? But it also... Uh, potentially. Right, uh, but it also, I mean... The, that security by default makes me think there's a like not a lot of efficiency. Like it also brings a lot of problems with it to not be. Oh. Yeah. And, and to be, to be clear, I, I am, I mean, I think you get an amount of resiliency, not security by, by that distributed, right? Because, you know, because an adversary has to get into multiple systems or, or, or multiple items. Um, on the flip side, the adversaries don't have to work really hard to get into multiple systems, right? It's not like breaking into a bank physically where you have to go right, to every right. single one, right? The, the nature of it is that you can scan lots of these um, organizations from anywhere in the world and you can do it all night long. You just need compute power and you can identify vulnerabilities and you can have automated scripts. So, you know, you're able to you know, you're still able to attack on scale um, or the adversaries are able to attack on, on scale. So, so now we're more scary. This is definitely more scary. Right. Well, and to your point, I mean, just in inciting the fear was enough. Like colonial pipeline is a really good example. I mean, they scared the hell out of us as a nation. They shut you guys down. So, and when we say resiliency, like that's kind of, I mean, maybe, um, I don't know if misnomer is the right word because sure, I still had gas in Utah, but that there was no resiliency for you guys on the East Coast, right? Right. And we do have, you know, in some sectors, and, and energy is probably a big one where there's it's very interconnected, right? Where there are interdependencies on, you know, the way that you know, pipelines work and natural gas is, is delivered and, and energy is you know, electric, electric produced distribution. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Hmm. Are you involved in any, any of the efforts kind of to, that brings government together with industry around this concept? 
Yeah. So one of the things that uh, we do and, or I do in my role at, at Venable is, you know, we help clients of the firm and then, and then we have our, uh, you know, individual clients that we work with on a variety of kind of cybersecurity matters. We also work with a number of industry coalitions um, and working with those industry coalitions, uh, such as yeah. the Alliance for Digital Innovation, um, is one where we bring together, you know, organizations, uh, public or private sector organizations that are very interested and focused on delivery of capabilities into the public sector. Um, and really, we then facilitate some of those conversations, policy conversations, where do we need policies to go um, to add security to the public sector, but also that will add security, um, you know, to the private sector. And, and we've seen, you know, this administration particularly very focused on you know, second and third order impacts from a security standpoint, right? Using the federal acquisition regulations to drive the, you know, to drive security behavior in an organization in order to sell something to the government um, that will also impact the services that they sell commercially as well. Um, well, and having, so, having worked across multiple uh, political administrations, um, does it vary from administration to administration or is there like, are, are there civil servants that kind of dr- keep driving that effort forward? I mean, or is it really kind of more politicized? So fortunately, in my opinion, technology and cybersecurity has not been very politicized. Um, and, and, you know, really going back from, you know, Bush to Obama, um, to, to Trump and to Biden, in my opinion, we've seen a good bit of consistency around the directions uh, that people have been headed. And, and even, you know, uh, I was, you know, I was there at the end of the Obama administration. I was there for most of the Trump administration. And I would say the Obama administration looked at cybersecurity and technology very much through the cyber lens, right? It was a post-OPM hack environment, very focused on cybersecurity and, and moving that forward. Uh, the Trump administration came in and looked at it through a little different lens. They looked at it largely through technology modernization, right? How do we, okay. you know, modernize the government, modernize solutions, both for delivery of, of you know, citizen services um, and cybersecurity was a part of that. But when we sat down and literally sat down and briefed, you know, Jared Kushner when he came in on what we were doing from a technology and cybersecurity standpoint, his response to us was, you know, that all seems like the right stuff. You know, you, you should keep doing that. It's a shame you didn't have very good leadership to help you actually be able to deliver that. Um, but it seems like the right thing. So keep doing it. Uh, and so it's, Mark, it's a little oh, bit of fine. Yes. It, it, it was an interesting moment. Um, and when we were like, yay, we're okay. Thank you very much. We'll, we'll continue. So and nothing so we really were, changed with what you guys were doing. I mean, how it was being reported, who we were working with, um, you know, there's always, if you're in the White House, there's, there's a political aspect, even though, you know, right. many of the people working in the White House are, are career civil servants, um, as I was, you know, it's mm-hmm. still going to be politicized and you're, you're working within some, a political environment. Uh, but yes, we were able to continue working in that direction and changing some of the language and focusing more on technology modernization 
at the same time continuing a lot of the cybersecurity work. Okay, well, that's nice, but it's not very scary. So let's get to this scary. <laughs> well, I have a scary. I have a scary thing to, to okay, ask go. Grant. Go, Mark. So, so, Grant, I hear about a lot in the news out there about, and this may not be a cyber thing at all, but I'm wondering. I'm curious if you think about this. What about like EMP attacks on oh, that's a good our one. Uh, electrical grids and stuff like that? I mean, is that more warfare as opposed to cyber? So. I think of it a little I think of it as warfare or terrorism. However, because I feel like that's where it would start. Um and and that would be you know the the motivating factors because it if we look at cybersecurity in general and we look at malicious cyber actors, right? We've got nation yeah. states, we've got terrorists that are just looking to disrupt and and do bad things. Um, and, you know, nation states are looking to steal and, and be able to spy and, and all of those things. And then we've got a whole bunch of, you know, what I would call criminals, people that are right. trying to make money. And I, and I don't know how you make money off an EMP that is just mm. destructive in nature. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly if there was an EMP, uh, and we took down big chunks of the infrastructure, that would be detrimental on so many levels. It would be super, super scary, right? I would be very scared of that. Uh, I don't see it as something that a criminal actor is going to go after. More of a nation state type thing. A nation state's going to want to have that capability for a time Mm -hmm. of war where they might want to do it. However, nation states also, you know, even in a time of war, sometimes don't want to be that destructive if that's an infrastructure they want to come take over in the future. Uh, and, and we've even seen some of that in Ukraine or certainly at the beginning of, of Ukraine. And so, you know, terrorism is where I think it's most scary because terrorists really don't care about the consequences. Mm-hmm. And, and so from a, a longer term or even near term policy, yeah. They just want to burn exactly. it down. They don't care. Yeah. So what, are, what does the future look like? Like, what's the scariest thing that we should be? Ooh, I have another one too. How does AI play into all of this? Like, how does it make it scarier? All this stuff that we've been talking about. I think where AI potentially makes it scarier is uh, AI is allows for acceleration. Right? I, I think is is one of the things, and it, it allows it's a force multiplier. Right, yeah. you can get lots of things done a lot quicker, both in a good way and in a bad way, um, using AI. And AI is, I mean, we've had machine learning for a long time. AI tools and capabilities have been here. Uh, you know, chat GPT really put it on the, on the mm-hmm. map uh, and, and made it kind of a, a mainstream by making a super easy interface, right? Where now anyone can interface with this AI capability. Um, and so I'm confident AI is being leveraged by malicious actors it allows them to be better, right? Phishing emails 10 years ago were pretty mm-hmm. bad and obvious. Um, AI makes it a lot, and they've gotten much better. AI makes it a lot easier. Allows you to scale if you're a bad guy. Allows bad guys to scale much quicker um, and can have more impacts. And then, you know, in the future when AI is doing more things for us and we don't really understand how it's working, well, we won't understand when it's not working well or right. 
Um, and, and as we interconnect things and we don't understand the algorithms and the models, um, I mean, quite frankly, many people my age and certainly older than me, you know, used to really understand how our cars worked. <laughs> you, you did lots of your maintenance. You, you yeah. understood, you know, when I was in high school, we were pulling engines out of cars and pulling them apart and putting them back together. And now you look in and it's a whole bunch of computers in the car. Uh, there's an average like 13 or 20 computers in every single car today. So, you know, it's just become more opaque to the, the user of, you know, how these things are operating. And I think that's a scary aspect, potentially of AI. Yeah. Well, and even before we get to, you know, how it works, just the ability we're seeing even with chat GPT right now to spread, I mean, wrong information and people are taking it as fact and passing it on because it sounds so credible. Um, I mean, just that social, I guess it's not really social engineering, but just that social side of it is already causing some havoc. Well, and I think the, 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 the more data that's out there and the, the, AI tools and the ability to understand the data, right? We're seeing not only are people taking information because it's believable, but there are tools out there that allow someone to understand what's believable to Carolyn versus okay. what's believable. You know, where am I already leaning towards? Where's Mark leaning? Where are you leaning? And yeah. then delivering messages that are going to resonate, um, and whether they're true or they're not. They're going to resonate. And when something resonates with us, we ask fewer questions about it. It seems right. It sounds plausible. Um, it's what I wanted to hear. And so I see these technology capabilities coming. At the same time, you know, from a society standpoint, it's become, you know, more accepted is the word I'll use, not okay, but accepted, you know, to to be very divisive and to be blunt and to, oh, yeah. you know, state your opinion, things that, you know, I was brought up by my mom. You don't say a whole bunch of this stuff out loud. Um, that seems to have gone by the wayside uh, for, for a lot of folks, um, mm. including public figures. And I think, so we've got this societal time that we're in combined with this technology capabilities that, uh, that, that can feed on literally and do feed on each other. October is National Cybersecurity Awareness Month, and so a lot of people are talking about it during this time. Are there certain things that you're seeing organizations do or best practices that they're talking about to defend against uh, things like we mentioned ransomware before? So, you know... I think one of the great things about National Cybersecurity Awareness Month is exactly, you know, raising awareness, giving an opportunity for people to, to hopefully spend a little bit of time and think about cybersecurity and what they're doing from a cybersecurity standpoint. And, and I think that, you know, for some organizations that are focused on this all day long, day in, day out, um, you know, maybe they're, they're not going to raise their awareness that much more during October. But I think a lot of organizations that aren't thinking about this all the time for a lot of lead, business leaders and, and C-suite organ entities and, you know, the, that 
you know, understand now, I think most people recognize I should be scared, right? That a cyber incident you know, could make my whole business model go away. It could make my whole business go away. Like, it, you know, you're only one bad, bad kind of cyber incident away from your, your organization not existing anymore. And hopefully Cybersecurity Awareness Month is an opportunity to go sit down and, and have those conversations that a leader that doesn't understand this space might be personally scared to have and say, what do we need to do about it? What should we be doing about it? What are the things? I read an article the other day um, because there's so much out this month. And, and a lot of it's going to be back to basics. Right? I mean, I often talk about cybersecurity uh, sounds cool and sexy, uh, but it's, it's kind of like working in a brewery. If you've ever, you know, brewed beer in your house, uh, working in a brewery sounds exciting, but if you've ever actually brewed beer, it's all about sanitization. It's about cleaning stuff all day long. And cybersecurity is that way. It's about doing the basics. It's about implementing multi-factor authentications. It's about updating and patching and, and doing the things because most incidents come from a known vulnerability that didn't get dealt with in the infrastructure that got exploited. I like it. So your your words of advice for our listeners, like best practices here is first awareness. Um, and then back to those basics that we've been talking about for years, multi-factor authentication, patches, updates. And remember, it's the same as brewing beer. So there you go. Um, all right. Let's go to our tech talk questions uh, before we completely run out of time. Because do you know what else is cool about October? Halloween. Um, so if you celebrate, Grant, do you have a favorite Halloween tradition or a favorite past costume or coming costume? I'm going to go with tradition. I'm, I'm less a costume person. Um, you know, it's it's funny. I live in a neighborhood where the houses are fairly spread out, and I have a steep driveway, so it's typically a disincentive. and And we don't have a ton of kids in the neighborhood. Uh, I used to always, you know, we would you could pretty much tell when the neighbors' kids were coming, and when they're, you know, when they were young, their parents would come as well. and And I would always come to the door with a bowl of candy. And, and a platter with a few beers on it as well, or some other adult adult beverage uh, for the parents. For the parents. But now the, but now the parents don't come up the hill. They just throw a party in, at someone's house and send the kids <laughs> off. Uh, so it, it's very much just getting to, to see the kids as they come by uh, and enjoy the, enjoy the costumes and get them to take as much of the candy as possible so I don't have to deal with it later. Grant, Carolyn is a costume girl. She, I'm surprised you didn't actually wear a costume today. I kind of wanted to, like for all these Halloween episodes, uh, I was going to have, yeah. like, ask our guests to dress up. Then I thought that might be a bit of a stretch. And now that I know that, you know, you're Grant's not, not dressed up for guy. you, Carolyn. Yeah. Just, it, just to, <laughs> I, you know, I definitely would have dressed up for you. <laughs> I'm trying to think who you dressed up as. I, Grant, you dressed up as yourself. <laughs> it's so talk. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll dress up as Mark. <laughs> okay. All right. All right, Mark, you get to ask the next tech talk. What about cattle? Uh, what about uh, Halloween candy? So it, <laughs> if you go back to like, go back to maybe your childhood, did you have a go-to candy, your favorite candy? Uh, so I was always like a Snickers bar, right? Chocolate. When I was growing up, it was all about chocolate. And 
And then I, I grew up and became an adult. And so what do you do when, you know, it was all about chocolate for you as a kid, you buy chocolate. Mm-hmm. And my kids could care less when they were little. They wanted sour stuff, sour oh. patch this, sour patch that. And, you know, I would see kids at my door dig, move all the chocolate out of the way, trying to find those couple sour patch things. So it uh, seems like it's evolved over over the so years. Is your go-to now beer? <laughs> I, I'm not really a sweet tooth. I'm, I'm more of a savory person. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. All right. Last question. Um, less about Halloween. Actually, do you have like a favorite Halloween time, fall time movie or book or story that you'd like to revisit? Oh, I don't. I've never been a big like scary movie fan. Yeah. I just. Me either. Have, scary yeah, I, either. Like, they've, they've never, never, never appealed to me that much. Yeah. Um, yeah, so how so Halloween like movies around Halloween? That's what I think of um, are all the the Halloween movies, literally, um, and 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 other things. So yeah, I don't think about movies so much. Let me hit. Let me hit Brett with one. Although I haven't question. seen Oppenheimer, but it could be the scary Halloween movie oh. this year. So oh, it's excellent. Is it's it excellent? Okay, yeah. so is Barbie. Go with Barbie. It's also funny. <laughs> it's so funny. You just don't like Oppenheimer. Women Oppenheimer was really good. Yeah, the acting was great. Great cast. I mean, this yeah. is very historical, so you you know the story. You know how it ends, but it was it was neat how they kind of portrayed it. All right. Do you, do you have one last question for Grant? Oh, I was just going to say for Grant. Hey, no, not Halloween uh, related, but um, for the for young people who are going to listen to the podcast, any advice, career advice on uh, folks uh, coming into uh, this arena, where they should start, what they should do? So, you know, diversity of experiences, I think. Get as many different experiences. And that doesn't mean get a new job every year. Um, I don't think that looks good on a resume. Uh, but diversity of experiences and, you know, whatever it is you're working on, you know, when, when your boss, or your coworkers say, Hey, we're looking for someone to work on this. Always say, yes, yes. I want to go work on that as well. Even if you don't know what it is, even if you're not interested in it, you're going to learn more and you're going to become a, a more well-rounded, uh, you know, employee, a more re- well-rounded leader at some point. Uh, and, and really just, you know, what are the different skills that you want to put in your personal professional toolbox uh, and and view it as, you know, work and life is a bit of a scavenger hunt for those skills. So That's seeking out advice. the places where you can go, get the right skills, put them together so that your resume is unique um, and you're able to fit in well with lots of different teams, work on different projects and, and be viewed as a value add um, from your coworkers, your leaders, your customers, you know, kind of that whole 360, um, I think is, is super important, uh, super important for people to consider. Yeah, that's great advice. I mean, and it shows that you're adaptive, you're willing to learn, you're able to learn, which really are, I mean, when I'm looking for somebody to work with or to hire, that's what I want. I want to know, can they learn and, and then 
Yeah. They may, they may not know the specific skill, but how, what kind of a learner are they? Right. Can, can they learn what they need, need to, to be successful here? And do they play yes. well with others? Yes. Oh, that's, yes. A good one. that's, that's actually really important. I'm still trying to figure that one out. So, <laughs> all right. Well, Grant, thank you so much for being part of the show today. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And, uh, everyone, you know, Take, take some time during October to uh, A, think about Halloween and scary things and cybersecurity. So they go well together. No, this was great. Thanks for uh, joining us, Grant. Uh, good to talk to you again. Yeah, and thanks to our listeners. Share this episode, smash that like button, and we will talk to you next time on Tech Transforms. Thanks for joining Tech Transforms, sponsored by Dynatrace. For more Tech Transforms, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram.